You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. In Maine, we're not so much concerned with how a man talks as what he says. Richard Nixon says he's winding down the war. But just the other day, he launched the biggest bomber attack in nine years, and our infantry moved back into combat position. I say, let's get out now. And that's a presidential promise you can count on. On Tuesday the 25th, vote for Muskie, because you're not just voting in a primary, you're voting for a president. <laughs> In early 1971, the presidential campaign for a little-known U.S. senator from South Dakota was in search of a path to the nomination. The traditional route passed through New Hampshire, and that year's early favorite to hoist the Democratic Party banner? We were up against a front-runner named Ed Muskie from the adjoining state of Maine, and Senator Muskie was leading in the polls and was very well known in New Hampshire. So. We had a conversation. There were just about six of us at that time. During that fateful planning session, advisor Richard Stearns began ticking off key primaries favorable to McGovern. Campaign manager Gary Hart was searching for a game changer. And so I said to him, Rick, is there any state that begins the nomination process before New Hampshire? He said, well, there are caucuses in Iowa, but no one has paid much attention to them. I said, we're going to pay attention to them. Well, Gary Hart was terrific as a campaign manager. I'm not at all sure I would have won that nomination without that great grassroots organization that uh, Gary built. McGovern's time on Iowa soil was meager by the standards set by dozens of politicians only years later. You know, when you're out there, it's kind of lonely. You're walking around looking for somebody to shake hands with. In Iowa, even a junior senator from South Dakota with very little money had a chance. Stockbroker Lonnie Birma and his wife Peg, both supporters of George McGovern, trying hard to understand the mechanics of the reform rules, which some had thought would require a Ph.D. in math. But I don't think any other campaign really understood how doing well in Iowa before New Hampshire could reposition candidates, and George McGovern was very low in the polls. 8 o'clock, 4515, Wakanda Parkway, Des Moines, Iowa. Democratic voters in this middle-income 87th precinct are coming to the home of Mrs. Ellen Sissio, here to begin the four-month-long procedure of selecting delegates to the National Democratic Convention. On caucus night 1972, McGovern, considered a long shot to even contend for his party's nomination, placed second behind national frontrunner Muskie. 
We didn't fully realize it until we saw the news coverage on the results. A dozen reporters were alongside Iowa Democratic Party staffer Richard Bender, ready to file for the night. One of those dozen reporters or so was Johnny Apple of the New York Times, who wrote a big story in the New York Times, which was picked up by the the national uh, TV folks. And it was a big deal. But we didn't, you know, before that, we had no idea this, you know, would happen. It was the first time that a headline from an election appeared with me in the subhead saying George McGovern came in a strong second. McGovern would use the Iowa momentum and Muskie's own mistakes to claim the 1972 Democratic nomination. He would ultimately lose to President Richard Nixon in an epic landslide, but the seeds of an Iowa caucus moment had been sown for the next man in. Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and we're going to take a look now at the beginnings of the Democratic campaign for president in 1972. And you just heard about really one of the most remarkable, come from by out of nowhere, upset wins in political history, and that's George McGovern. And uh, he came out of nowhere to to finish second in the Iowa caucuses. And, and, and position himself to not only defeat Hubert Humphrey, who was the 1968 nominee, uh, he also defeats uh, uh, Edmund Muskie, Senator Muskie who, from Maine, who was the clear front runner and had this meltdown uh, in New Hampshire that may have been a little unfair to him because it was snowing outside and he was very, very angry and uh, it looked like tears were running down his face, and there's been controversy about that uh, for it's ever since it happened, but it sunk him. And uh, we're going to listen to a reporter who was there talk about uh, what happened uh, that day and the fact that there is some controversy to it. As any aspiring reporter learns, the first obligation of a journalist is to tell the truth. But what about when journalists witness an event and come away with different accounts of what actually happened? Media reports about the people who come to New Hampshire to run for president are a lot like snowflakes. No two are the same. Sometimes those differences have consequences. On February 26, 1972, Maine Senator and Democratic presidential frontrunner Edmund Muskie gave a speech outside the union leader in Manchester in a driving snowstorm. He was furious with publisher William Loeb over some rough treatment on the pages of the UL. Muskie was visibly upset, and while some journalists reported there were tears running down his face, others saw the wetness of melting snow. Whatever the truth, the event sent the campaign into a tailspin and became the stuff of primary legend. By attacking me, by attacking my wife, he has proved himself to be a gutless coward. And then this in the middle of the editorial. man doesn't walk, he crawls. Joining us now, an eyewitness to his history, John Milne, who was there in 1972 covering that event for United Press International. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So let's get the big question out of the way first. Did you see Edmund Muskie cry? I was standing at his left toe, and we he was on this big flatbed truck, and 
uh, three of us were using the truck to guard our uh, our notebooks because it was snowing so heavily. Yeah, and you know this is you know we had tape recorders, but not really, and you know all the modern stuff we have here hmm. just didn't exist. And so I was I was standing there, and I remember looking at Muskie's toe, and then I had to, and I was very careful, because he, he was going through this, he doesn't walk, he crawls business, and mm-hmm. all that, and he seizes up, and I remember having to watch, obviously having to watch very carefully what I saw, and I did not see tears, I saw, you know, choked up, yes, uh, he later told me, Muskie, that it was anger, hmm. which, you know, makes some sense. Right. And we can see in that video, there's a tremendous amount of snow falling. It's gathering on his head, yeah. um, and perhaps it was melting from the hair into the, and then running down the side of his Did you see wetness on his face? I can't remember. Yeah. Was there any rhyme or reason to who reported tears and who didn't in terms of placement in the crowd? Yes. Well, I... As soon as he was done, I ran for the telephone. That's another thing we used to do back then. <laughs> and David Broder, who's the, who even back then was the, the venerated reporter for the Western Post, was surprised, almost shocked. And the farther away you got from Muskie, the more you were likely to see tears or you were like to see something. Um, Broder reported tears running down his face. That was uh, his lead. Yeah, absolutely. And that was important enough to change the look of, change the coverage of that. That uh, I remember I got a call from my bosses in New York who said, how come you didn't write any tears? I said, well, I didn't cry. Hmm. But David's, you know, look at that. Uh, was what set the tone for everybody. Um, my colleague from the AP was with me under the under the flatbed, and the AP changed the story without report without asking the reporter. Hmm. So it was, it, you know, David's stature was such that if he reported, it had to be true, and it's it was just a, a difference in. In perception, right, with tremendous consequences. And it, it, you touched on this, but it, when a local paper reports something, that's one thing. David Broder, as you were saying, this is you know the Washington Post. He's an authoritative reporter. If he says it and it goes around the country, it's accepted as truth. And the other sort of people like that were the two wire services, hmm. that because they were in everybody's newsroom, so you got that phenomenon that was captured in the boys in the bus where they would go and ask the wire service report what's your lead hmm. just because they didn't want to have something different f- from when when they called called the office and you got this editor having read all this stuff right what was that conversation like with your editor when he called up and it said hey we have this you know other story that says he was crying i said i was there and he wasn't crying and the editor said that's good enough for me and subsequently, uh, that, and his boss eventually asked me the same question. Mm. 
uh, he said, oh, yeah, it's good enough for me, too. <laughs> you were a reporter for a long time in Washington. Yeah. You know, from my perspective, it seems like national reporters sometimes get caught up in the narrative uh, of a story. And, and you, they walk into New Hampshire thinking about the Washington narrative. And we know that Muskie was known for a bit of a temper, was known yeah. to be a bit emotional. Do you think that played into what Broder was seeing that day or what other people were seeing, that they knew this was an emotional guy and that maybe that was, you know, hey, uh, we've, we've seen this before? I think that were, that the incident fulfilled expectations mm-hmm. of Muskie as, you know, a guy who would lose his temper. Um, there had, apparently had been a couple of incidents, you know, with reporters previous to that. And so they, they saw it. And there was this sort of natural assumption that maybe that's what we saw. But the other piece of it was that the union leader made a big deal out of it that, you know, this shows that the guy is unstable and that that this is wrong. And, you know, that's one union leader accomplishment. Uh, The other was that the, the underlying event was presumed to be a letter from a guy in Florida, Paul Morrison, if I remember correctly, who who witnessed uh, an event in an old folks' home where a staffer used uh, horrible phrases to, to make ethnic remarks. About French Canadians. Well, it started out talking about African Americans. Mm. And, it, and you have them down there, but up here we have, uh, and I don't want, you know. Right, yeah, use the term uh, derogatory slur towards French Canadians. Yeah, um, and that's, and and that was what hurt. The letter that that, uh, that said that Muskie had allowed this, this to take place. And we know now in retrospect that that was all over the west side of Manchester, all over the heavily Franco-American wards. And that's why Muskie felt he had to do that. And when he did, he brought several uh, French politicians from, uh, French-American politicians from uh, all over, including Severin Bellevaux, Speaker of the House in Maine at the time, who had been a law partner of Muskie's. And I say, no, this guy doesn't discriminate. And so, but that was that was the impression it made, uh, and voters believed it. You could see in the results that uh, McGovern, who was the challenge, George McGovern, who was the challenger, was closer to Muskie in those wards than anybody ever expected he would be. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it, it worked. These many decades later, what's your perspective on this event now? Is this sort of a turning point at all in how primaries are covered now, the, the, the obsession that turned out to be with gaffes and pol- political mistakes? This is the first time in my memory that an, an event like this was allowed to undercut a lifetime of honorable public service. You mentioned that you had a chance to talk with Muskie later yes. in life. When you did get that chance to sit down with him, was he upset about this? Was he angry at all about what had taken place? Well, this is 1980, so it's you know, almost a decade. So, yeah, yeah he, I mean, he, 
I wouldn't say anger in the sense that people were, you know, he was furious and ranting and raving, but he was angry about it, he was probably a bit bitter, um, and uh, was saying that no, he didn't, you know, what we, what we reported, <laughs> he didn't cry. He was angry, he choked up, and, um, neither, you know, he didn't get over it, but, you know, he's living with it and went back to the Senate and, and a longer discouraged, distinguished career. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's, that's, that should be enough for most people. <laughs> John Milne, longtime UPI reporter and Boston Globe reporter, thank you for your thank eyewitness you. account to this seminal moment in primary history. Thank you for watching this edition of Primary Vault. And, uh, hey, we're going to be back right away. We've got a note here. Yeah, this is WOR New York. And we're going to take a break right now. And we're going to go direct and live to Florida for re- a big report on the nation's second presidential primary. And here he is, WOR's Lester Smith. What's happening, Les? A campaign that has swept every nook and corner of this big, broad state of Florida has swept Alabama's Governor George Wallace far out front in the 11-man race in the Democratic presidential primary held here in Florida today. Of course, it must be pointed out immediately that there was one specific single major issue on which this whole campaign centered, and it is not the kind of issue which conceivably would be the only one in other states. But by taking the problem and the question of the busing of school children to achieve racial integration, which he so vehemently opposes, and which struck so firm a note amongst so many voters here in the state of Florida, the governor of Alabama would now 91% of Florida's votes tally, 2,595 of 2,841 precincts. George Wallace has achieved 43% of the vote. And as we mentioned before, this is anywhere between 8 and 10% more than had been anticipated, even amongst those who conceded that Wallace was going to be the number one man in this 11-man field. He has 477,184 votes, 43%. In second place, and it is not really a very good second place, but it is second place, is Senator Hubert Humphrey, who was the 1968 Democratic presidential nominee with 17% of the vote, but not quite 192,000 votes. A surprise move in the third place has come from Senator Henry Jackson of the state of Washington, uh, who was the sort of conservative amongst the other Democrats that entered in this primary and uh, who gained a great deal of support over the past few weeks from those Democrats who approved pretty much of what Mr. Wallace was saying, or at least to a certain degree, but did not want to vote for Wallace, wanted to stay in a Democratic candidate. And since Jackson strongly opposes the concept of busing just to achieve integration, he was the beneficiary of those votes. The big surprise and the major disappointment of the primary from the standpoint of any candidate has been Senator Edmund Muskie of Maine, who at this stage, with 91% of the vote tallied and better than a million and a half votes counted, still has not yet achieved 100,000 votes. He has 9% of the vote with 98,129 votes. They only have a contest of any nature, and it really isn't much of a contest as what's going on for fifth and sixth place between New York's Mayor John Lindsay and uh, Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. Lindsay now has uh, edge over McGovern for fifth place with 73,000 to 66,000 for McGovern. Uh, Lindsay a little better than 6% of the vote, uh, almost 7%. Uh, McGovern just about 6%. But there again, uh, 
what do you do with 6% of a vote uh, in a contest such as this? It must be said, of course, uh, that McGovern and Lindsay, in this kind of a campaign, with this one single issue, uh, certainly, uh, as the out most outspoken liberals in the contest, uh, were not going to do anywhere near or remotely as well as they might have done uh, had the busing issue not been the single most important. Oh, well, the Republicans, of course, as we've said all night long, it's just, uh, it's just a, a, an exercise in counting ballots. President Nixon with 87%, Congressman Ashbrook with 9%, and Congressman McCloskey, who has withdrawn from the race, but whose name is still on the ballot, has 4%. We do feel, however, that again, we will bring you up to date on those three uh, very important so-called uh, straw ballots on the, uh, on the voting ballot today, uh, the one which uh, calls for a constitutional amendment which would prohibit busing to achieve racial integration and which would mandate and guarantee the right of school children to remain in schools in their own neighborhoods, schools of their own choosing. And by the same token, the so-called equal education straw ballot proposal, uh, which calls for a system of equal education for all children, uh, regardless of race, color, or creed, or uh, residence in any given community. In addition to which, there is also the school prayer uh, uh, proposal, uh, which calls for a constitution, United States constitutional amendment uh, to permit prayer in public schools. Bear in mind that there is nothing official or binding about these proposals. They are not referenda. They are simply proposals, straw ballot tests of the sentiment uh, of the voters of this state, but you can uh, easily see what that sentiment is. Again, uh, let's go now to 92% of the vote. Wallace continues with 43%, Humphrey 17 Jackson 14 Muskie 9%. Uh, Lindsay still has uh, not quite seven, and McGovern uh, just about six percent. Lester Smith reporting from WR Primary Election Headquarters in Miami. Back now to WR New York. Born in a southern town in Alabama, came up the ranks like any other man. Scholar, attorney, governor too. Now he's ready for 72. Georgie, Georgie Wallace, leader of our land. Now we've had Democrats, Republicans too. It's time for independence for me and you. To curb inflation, taxes too. George Wallace for 72. Georgie. George Wallace is just kind of an amazing figure, but I, I give him credit. He's got the best songs of anybody in, in campaign uh, folklore uh, that I can think of. All of his songs are really good, but I guess that's the Southerner in me that likes those, those kind of country-sounding songs. 
But he is on the rise uh, in this race, and he's winning in places outside of the South. Though these what we're listening to here uh, are Florida and, and Alabama or Southern states, but Maryland and Indiana are places where he is contending as well. So he is he is on the rise with that populism and that anger. You know, there's a market for that, and uh, and that's been true even today with with President former President Trump, but. Uh, George Wallace was kind of the originator originator of that type of politics, uh, and you know it is it, he taps into it, and and you see it uh, in the nineteen seventy two campaign, just as you saw it in nineteen sixty eight. Voters in three states in the District of Columbia marked ballots today in the biggest primary day of campaign seventy two. The voting in the Capitol and in Alabama involved convention delegates unpledged to any candidate, although in some instances favoring one or the other. So the interest centered on Indiana and Ohio. Ohio has evolved essentially into a race between Hubert Humphrey and George McGovern. The count will be slowed there by a voting machine problem in the Cleveland area, which has resulted in a federal court order keeping polls open until midnight. That Cuyahoga County area accounts for some 20% or more of the Ohio vote. In Indiana, Edmund Muskie's name remained on the ballot, but the race was between Humphrey and George Wallace. We have a report from Bill Curtis. George Wallace has been driving hard in Indiana, and although he predicts victory in the state's primary tonight, he's just a little nervous. Take it easy now, we've got it. I, I showed you just how to do it. In the final push to the wire, there is more worrying George Wallace than his wife's driving, for Hubert Humphrey is closing fast. With Ed Muskie out of contention and George McGovern's name not on the ballot, it's Wallace and Humphrey head-to-head. Wallace is concentrated on this state to cultivate the support he senses among Indiana's 600,000 union members. His speeches haven't changed much. The issues here provide the same fertile ground for a Wallace appeal. High emotions over busing, rising taxes, a protest vote of the working man, and the claim that he said it all first. And in 68, I said that. Not a one of them said it. Have you noticed Mr. Humphrey and Mr. McGovern and all I'm talking about? If you elect me president, I'm going to reduce your taxes. I'm going to sponsor bills that will give tax relief and tax reform. Well, why didn't they introduce those bills? Mr. Humphrey's been in the Senate 24 years, in the House 24 years. Why didn't he introduce a bill 24 years ago? The Indiana primary will be a test of labor strength. The Wallace blue-collar workers against Humphrey's traditional endorsements by the union leadership. But the question remains in Indiana, Will Humphrey's traditional labor support hold up among the rank and file? In the week before the primary, union leaders began to turn the organization into gear for Humphrey. Leaflets went out to members. Volunteers went door to door offering rides to the polls. These are invitations to the Humphrey rally for Senator Humphrey. And this is another invitation for another rally. And there were other tactics directed against Wallace. This is a five-minute political message reportedly produced by regular Democratic Labor supporters. When Wallace got the vote, Nixon got the White House. It wasn't meant to be that way, but a lot of people got fooled. The spot ran daily last week blaming Wallace for electing Richard Nixon, and it blamed Richard Nixon for unemployment. George Wallace didn't like it. Many of the things said about us have been distorted. And you've had some ads on television and in the newspapers that are just as erroneous and untrue as anything that I've ever heard of. 
But Hubert Humphrey made sure others heard of it. A vote for Wallace is a vote for Nixon. That's right. Wallace brags. Listen to this. Wallace brags he put Nixon in the White House. Dear friends, it may not have been, in your mind, the worst thing that I was defeated, but let me tell you something. The worst possible thing that could happen to you is that Richard Nixon was elected. And Mr. Wallace admits that he was responsible for it. Senator Humphrey bounced back and forth between Indiana and Ohio, entering both primaries, and state Democratic leaders fear he may have weakened both races by spreading himself and his staff too thin. But the race has been extremely close. Labor will make the difference for both candidates. With the choice of Humphrey or Wallace, no one needs to guess where the black votes will go. Only 76 delegate votes are at stake in Indiana, and Hubert Humphrey maintains a loss here would not be fatal to his campaign. But a Wallace win would be embarrassing and significant as the first major Wallace victory in a primary north of the Mason-Dixon line. Bill Curtis, CBS News, near Indiana. As the campaign's heating up, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, they go on an offensive around Easter time. And, you know, President Nixon, of course, has been backing off and, and moving troops out. So we don't have the half a million troops like we had. Um, it's roughly around 80,000 troops or so. And so uh, President Nixon has to step up, and that's what he's going to do here. And he's going to play hardball, and he's going to mine the harbors, and he's going to bombing Hanoi, and he is going to take this to them, uh, take this battle to them, because he's looking for his way out of this race. And you got to remember that this is now happening after he's made the opening to China, and uh, and so he has some momentum here and, and some cards to play. What's also in the background here uh, is that the Soviet, he has a, uh, a summit coming in May with the Soviets later on in this month. And he is risking them canceling this summit meeting in Moscow. Uh, though, I think in retrospect, you realize that the Soviets are worried about this relationship that he's developed with China. And they're not going to let the, the situation in Hanoi and in Vietnam stop them from meeting and, and trying to bridge those gaps between him and the, and the United States. So it, there's a lot at stake here as President Nixon makes the move that he's going to make with this speech and this move to take the fight into uh, North Vietnam. Good evening. Five weeks ago on Easter weekend, the communist armies of North Vietnam launched a massive invasion of South Vietnam an invasion that was made possible by tanks, artillery, and other advanced offensive weapons supplied to Hanoi by the Soviet Union and other communist nations. The South Vietnamese have fought bravely to repel this brutal assault. Casualties on both sides have been very high. Most tragically, there have been over 20,000 civilian casualties, including women and children, in the cities which the North Vietnamese have shelled in wanton disregard of human life. As I announced in my report to the nation 12 days ago, the role of the United States in resisting this invasion has been limited to air and naval strikes on military targets in North and South Vietnam. As I also pointed out in that report, we have responded to North Vietnam's massive military offensive by undertaking wide-ranging new peace efforts aimed at ending the war through negotiation. On April 20th, I sent Dr. Kissinger to Moscow for four days of meetings with General Secretary Brezhnev and other Soviet leaders. 
I instructed him to emphasize our desire for a rapid solution to the war and our willingness to look at all possible approaches. At that time, the Soviet leaders showed an interest in bringing the war to an end on a basis just to both sides. They urged resumption of negotiations in Paris, and they indicated they would use their constructive influence. I authorized Dr. Kissinger to meet privately with the top North Vietnamese negotiator, Lee Duc Tho, on Tuesday, May 2nd, in Paris. Ambassador Porter, as you know, resumed the public peace negotiations in Paris on April 27, and again on May 4. At those meetings, both public and private, all we heard from the enemy was bombastic rhetoric and a replaying of their demands for surrender. For example, at the May 2nd secret meeting, I authorized Dr. Kissinger to talk about every conceivable avenue toward peace. The North Vietnamese flatly refused to consider any of these approaches. They refused to offer any new approach of their own. Instead, they simply read verbatim their previous public demands. Here's what over three years of public and private negotiations with Hanoi has come down to. The United States, with the full concurrence of our South Vietnamese allies, has offered the maximum of what any president of the United States could offer. We have offered a de-escalation of the fighting. We have offered a ceasefire with a deadline for withdrawal of all American forces. We have offered new elections, which would be internationally supervised, with the communists participating both in the supervisory body and in the elections themselves. President Chu has offered to resign one month before the elections. We have offered an exchange of prisoners of war in a ratio of 10 North Vietnamese prisoners for every one American prisoner that they release. And North Vietnam has met each of these offers with insolence and insult. They have flatly and arrogantly refused to negotiate an end of the war and bring peace. Their answer to every peace offer we have made has been to escalate the war. In the two weeks alone since I offered to resume negotiations, Hanoi has launched three new military offensives in South Vietnam. In those two weeks, the risk that a communist government may be imposed on the 17 million people of South Vietnam has increased. And the communist offensive has now reached the point that it gravely threatens the lives of 60,000 American troops who are still in Vietnam. There are only two issues left for us in this war. First, in the face of a massive invasion, do we stand by, jeopardize the lives of 60,000 Americans, and leave the South Vietnamese to a long night of terror? This will not happen. We shall do whatever is required to safeguard American lives and American honor. Second, in the face of complete intransigence at the conference table, do we join with our enemy to install a communist government in South Vietnam? This, too, will not happen. We will not cross the line from generosity to treachery. We now have a clear, hard choice among three courses of action. Immediate withdrawal of all American forces, continued attempts at negotiation, or decisive military action to end the war. 
I know that many Americans favor the first course of action, immediate withdrawal. They believe the way to end the war is for the United States to get out and to remove the threat to our remaining forces by simply withdrawing them. From a political standpoint, this would be a very easy choice for me to accept. After all, I did not send over one-half million Americans to Vietnam. I have brought 500,000 men home from Vietnam since I took office. But abandoning our commitment in Vietnam here and now would mean turning 17 million South Vietnamese over to communist tyranny and terror. It would mean leaving hundreds of American prisoners in communist hands with no bargaining leverage to get them released. An American defeat in Vietnam would encourage this kind of aggression all over the world, aggression in which smaller nations, armed by their major allies, could be tempted to attack neighboring nations at will in the Mideast, in Europe, and other areas. World peace would be in grave jeopardy. The second course of action is to keep on trying to negotiate a settlement. Now, this is the course we have referred from the beginning, and we shall continue to pursue it. We want to negotiate. But we have made every reasonable offer and tried every possible path for ending this war at the conference table. The problem is, as you all know, it takes two to negotiate. And now, as throughout the past four years, the North Vietnamese arrogantly refuse to negotiate anything but an imposition, an ultimatum, that the United States impose a communist regime on 17 million people in South Vietnam who do not want a communist government. It's plain, then, that what appears to be a choice among three courses of action for the United States is really no choice at all. The killing in this tragic war must stop. By simply getting out, we would only worsen the bloodshed. By relying solely on negotiations, we would give an intransigent enemy the time he needs to press his aggression on the battlefield. There's only one way to stop the killing. That is to keep the weapons of war out of the hands of the international outlaws of North Vietnam. Throughout the war in Vietnam, the United States has exercised a degree of restraint unprecedented in the annals of war. That was our responsibility as a great nation, a nation which is interested, and we can be proud of this as Americans, as America has always been, in peace, not conquest. However, when the enemy abandons all restraint, throws its whole army into battle in the territory of its neighbor, refuses to negotiate, we simply face a new situation. In these circumstances, with 60,000 Americans threatened, any president who failed to act decisively would have betrayed the trust of his country and betrayed the cause of world peace. I have therefore concluded that Hanoi must be denied the weapons and supplies it needs to continue the aggression. In full coordination with the Republic of Vietnam, I have ordered the following measures, which are being implemented as I am speaking to you. All entrances to North Vietnamese ports will be mined to prevent access to these ports and North Vietnamese naval operations from these ports. 
United States forces have been directed to take appropriate measures within the internal and claimed territorial waters of North Vietnam to interdict the delivery of any supplies. Rail and all other communications will be cut off to the maximum extent possible. Air and naval strikes against military targets in North Vietnam will continue. These actions are not directed against any other nation. Countries with ships presently in North Vietnamese ports have already been notified that their ships will have three daylight periods to leave in safety. After that time, the mines will become active and any ships attempting to leave or enter these ports will do so at their own risk. These actions I have ordered will cease when the following conditions are met. First, all American prisoners of war must be returned. Second, there must be an internationally supervised ceasefire throughout Indochina. Once prisoners of war are released, once the internationally supervised ceasefire has begun, we will stop all acts of force throughout Indochina. And at that time, we will proceed with a complete withdrawal of all American forces from Vietnam within four months. Now, these terms are generous terms. They are terms which would not require surrender and humiliation on the part of anybody. They would permit the United States to withdraw with honor. They would end the killing. They would bring our POWs home. They would allow negotiations on a political settlement between the Vietnamese themselves. They would permit all the nations which have suffered in this long war, Cambodia, Laos, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, to turn at last to the urgent works of healing and of peace. They deserve immediate acceptance by North Vietnam. It is appropriate to conclude my remarks tonight with some comments directed individually to each of the major parties involved in the continuing tragedy of the Vietnam War. First, to the leaders of Hanoi, your people have already suffered too much in your pursuit of conquest. Do not compound their agony with continued arrogance. Choose instead the path of a peace that redeems your sacrifices guarantees true independence for your country and ushers in an era of reconciliation. To the people of South Vietnam, you shall continue to have our firm support in your resistance against aggression. It is your spirit that will determine the outcome of the battle. It is your will that will shape the future of your country. To other nations, especially those which are allied with North Vietnam. The actions I have announced tonight are not directed against you. Their sole purpose is to protect the lives of 60,000 Americans who would be gravely endangered in the event that the communist offensive continues to roll forward and to prevent the imposition of a communist government by brutal aggression upon 17 million people. I particularly direct my comments tonight to the Soviet Union. We respect the Soviet Union as a great power. We recognize the right of the Soviet Union to defend its interests when they are threatened. The Soviet Union, in turn, must recognize our right to defend our interests. 
No Soviet soldiers are threatened in Vietnam. 60,000 Americans are threatened. We expect you to help your allies, and you cannot expect us to do other than to continue to help our allies. But let us, and let all great powers, help our allies only for the purpose of their defense, not for the purpose of launching invasions against their neighbors. Otherwise, the cause of peace, the cause in which we both have so great a stake, will be seriously jeopardized. Our two nations have made significant progress in our negotiations in recent months. We are near major agreements on nuclear arms limitation, on trade, on a host of other issues. Let us not slide back toward the dark shadows of a previous age. We do not ask you to sacrifice your principles or your friends, but neither should you permit Hanoi's intransigence to blot out the prospects we together have so patiently prepared. We, the United States and the Soviet Union, are on the threshold of a new relationship that can serve not only the interests of our two countries, but the cause of world peace. We are prepared to continue to build this relationship. The responsibility is yours if we fail to do so. And finally, may I say to the American people, I ask you for the same strong support you've always given your president in difficult moments. It is you, most of all, that the world will be watching. I know how much you want to end this war. I know how much you want to bring our men home. And I think you know from all that I have said and done these past three and a half years how much I too want to end the war to bring our men home. You want peace. I want peace. But you also want honor and not defeat. You want a genuine peace, not a peace that is merely a prelude to another war. At this moment, we must stand together in purpose and resolve. As so often in the past, we Americans did not choose to resort to war. It has been forced upon us by an enemy that has shown utter contempt toward every overture we have made for peace. And that is why my fellow Americans tonight I ask for your support of this decision, a decision which has only one purpose, not to expand the war, not to escalate the war, but to end this war and to win the kind of peace that will last. With God's help, with your support, we will accomplish that great goal. Thank you. Good night. The death of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover uh, cannot be overstated for its importance to what will happen down the road for Richard Nixon. Uh, the FBI director uh, had been there for almost 50 years, 48 years he'd been the director. Uh, he had, had uh, you know, the lots come out about J. Edgar Hoover. 
but he had been both the blackmailer and protector of presidents and of politicians. That's how he'd stayed there for as long as he had. Um, and uh, he did build the FBI. And so it was a monumental, huge moment in the history of the country when J. Edgar Hoover died. Uh, but also for Richard Nixon, it was going to be huge because, you know, the first thing that Nixon's going to try to do is rein some of this in, which, which is something that you don't hear people talk about uh, when they talk about President Nixon, that, that you know, he, he was really like a lot of presidents hamstrung by uh, Mr. Hoover. And so when Hoover dies, it's a chance to rein in the FBI, in which he will start to do it instead of picking the subordinate FBI person, he, he brings in Pat Gray uh, as the acting director and then the director to, to get control of the agency um, and, and change that, what had been the situation there. That's going to make the guy who was in line next angry at President Nixon, or at least he's going to try to show he can cause enough trouble for President Nixon uh, that he, it, that, then you know if you create the problem, then you be the one who comes in and fixes it. That makes you look good too. And there's a lot of issues here uh, with Mark Felt, and uh, that name is a name that you're going to hear later because it turns out much many years later he comes steps forward after he had dementia and uh, and and he fessed up to being deep throat, uh, which is the source the Washington Post used to uh, derail the Nixon administration during Watergate. And you can make up your own mind about whether well, hero or villain there, but uh, he was motivated by the fact that he didn't get the job as the director of the FBI. And so a lot of things that maybe Mr. Hoover would have taken care of that would have prevented Watergate from ever uh, being what it turned into are now exacerbated by the fact that Mark Felt is in a position to turn on the president. And that's something we're going to cover down the road. But this is a huge event and a huge moment in the history of the Nixon administration and the history of the United States, the death of Director J. Edgar Hoover. Sit it, please. Ladies and gentlemen, it is with a profound sense of personal loss that I learned of the death of J. Edgar Hoover. This truly remarkable man has served his country for 48 years under eight presidents as director of the FBI with unparalleled devotion and ability and dedication. For 25 years, from the time I came to Washington as a freshman congressman, he's been one of my closest personal friends and advisors. And every American, in my opinion, owes J. Edgar Hoover a great debt for building the FBI into the finest law enforcement organization in the entire world. I have ordered that all flags on government buildings be flown at half-mast. But I will say that in doing so, that Edgar Hoover, because of his indomitable courage against sometimes very vicious attack, has made certain that the flag of the FBI will always fly high. President Johnson, sir. I was trying to reach you. I just announced the death of J. Edgar Hoover. Yes, I, I just heard you. Right. And uh, I know how much you thought of him, and I tried to reach you uh, before, but uh, you were out on uh, someplace. I thought so. I'm very grateful. Yeah.
CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather in Washington, Nelson Benton in Washington, Don Webster south of Quang Tri, South Vietnam, Bill Curtis near Indianapolis, and John Cheyenne in Westling, West Germany, with a special report on the environment. Can the world be saved? Good evening. J. Edgar Hoover has died at the age of 77, the cause given as high blood pressure. For almost every living American generation, Hoover, the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, stood as the symbol of incorruptible law enforcement and untouchable who liked to boast that his men could not be bought. Hoover had dinner last night with his old friend and longtime FBI associate, 71-year-old Clyde Tolson, and then went to his home where his housekeeper found him this morning dead beside his bed. In 1924, during the Coolidge administration, Hoover took over the then scandal-ridden bureau. Thus began a service that spanned eight presidencies in almost half a century. The eight presidents under whom he worked, both Democratic and Republican, gave Hoover virtually a free hand to run an FBI he had cleared of political factionalism and made into an investigative organization envied around the world for its efficiency and high standards. Yet toward the later years of his life, Hoover came under increasing criticism from liberals who saw his operations as a big brother type threat to civil liberties. He was accused of using the FBI as his own public relations instrument, and his preoccupation with the threat of communism seemed dated. Yet Hoover himself saw communism as a real threat to the security of America. Communists have been, still are, and always will be a menace to freedom, to democratic ideals, to the worship of God, and to America's way of life. I feel that once public opinion is thoroughly aroused as it is today, the fight against communism is well on its way. Communist Party of the United States is a fifth column if there ever was one. Hoover visited the Capitol just a month and a half ago to testify at a congressional hearing. And it's there his body will be returned tomorrow to lie in state in the rotunda until shortly before funeral services on Thursday. These rites will be conducted at the National Presbyterian Church at an hour not yet determined. President Nixon will deliver the eulogy, but he may have spoken his epitaph today when he said, the FBI is the eternal monument honoring this great American. And the president elaborated on that tribute. It is with a profound sense of personal loss that I learned of the death of J. Edgar Hoover. This truly remarkable man has served his country for 48 years under eight presidents as director of the FBI with unparalleled devotion and ability and dedication. For 25 years, from the time I came to Washington as a freshman congressman, he's been one of my closest personal friends and advisors. And every American, in my opinion, owes J. Edgar Hoover a great debt for building the FBI into the finest law enforcement organization <laughs> 
in the entire world. I have ordered that all the flags of government buildings be flown at half-mast. But I will say that in doing so, that Edgar Hoover, because of his indomitable courage against sometimes very vicious attack, has made certain that the flag of the FBI will always fly high. It was a short while before the public announcement and before flags were lowered to Haas staff when FBI teletypes carried the message to agents and FBI employees around the country that the man who had occupied the director's office for nearly 48 years was dead. The work and the public functions of the FBI went on. Announcement of a new arrest in connection with the Yablonsky murders, the regular tours of FBI facilities. Tours to bear the mark of Hoover's lifelong concern over subversion and what he considers its principal source. Those tours went almost as on any other day. Okay. I mentioned before that Mr. Hoover passed away this morning. He became director on May 10th, 1924. And May 10th this year, he would have been director for 48 years. He passed away in his sleep of natural causes. At mid-afternoon, Acting Attorney General Kleindienst read a brief tribute to Hoover. As might be expected by a person in his position, at the head of an investigative body, he was from time to time the object of misplaced public attack, all of which he bore with the firmness and dignity of greatness. Without political ambition, he shunned any other office and never permitted the FBI to become the least tainted with political influence from any source. More than once, he expressed a desire to continue at his post until the end, and his wish has been fulfilled. Another associate recalled Hoover's reaction to critics who said that he wanted to hang on to his job until the massive new FBI building rising on Pennsylvania Avenue is finished. Hoover had joked, the associate said, if they keep going at the rate they've been going, none of us will be around when it's done. Another of his favorite buildings was the Mayflower Hotel, the only place besides the racetrack where he was seen regularly in public, came here most days for lunch, always eating in the same quiet, dark public room, always at the same table, always with his back to the wall. Maitre d' Louis Bayer usually had the meal ready and waiting. It seldom changed. Chicken soup, lightly buttered toast, little else. Waiter Joe Chapman says Mr. Hoover smiled and joked a lot and knew all of the help on a first-name basis. We kind of miss him or will miss him because... Uh, even the public uh, were expecting him every day when he walked through and uh, no sh uh, nothing special, just he was pleasant, nice, and people miss him as a great friend. Well, he's sort of a jolly fellow and easy to wait on, easygoing guy, and he liked for me to tease him a lot. And so we have a lot of fun together. So it turns out that while J. Edgar Hoover worked hard to have his image in public generally to be that of a tough cop. No one here at the Mayflower, where he often came, ever thought of him that way. Dan Rather, CBS News, the Mayflower Hotel, Washington. Hoover was a native of Washington, son of a coast and geodetic service employee and the niece of the first Swiss consul of the United States. He never married. 
The White House announced this evening that President Nixon will name at least a temporary successor to Hoover tomorrow. CBS News will have a special hour-long report on the life and career of J. Edgar Hoover tonight, beginning at 7.30 Eastern Daylight Time, 6.30 Central. Dr. Elston, Mrs. Eisenhower, Your Excellencies from the Diplomatic Corps, my fellow Americans. Today is a day of sadness for America, but it is also a day of pride. America's pride has always been its people, a people of good men and women by the millions, of great men and women in remarkable numbers, and once in a long while, of giants who stand head and shoulders above their countrymen, setting a high and noble standard for us all. J. Edgar Hoover was one of the giants. His long life brimmed over with magnificent achievement and dedicated service to this country, which he loves so well. One of the tragedies of life is that as a rule, a man's true greatness is recognized only in death. J. Edgar Hoover was one of the rare exceptions to that rule. He became a living legend while still a young man, and he lived up to his legend as the decades passed. His death only heightens the respect and admiration felt for him across this land and in every land where men cherish freedom. The greatness of Edgar Hoover will remain inseparable from the greatness of the organization he created and gave his whole life to building the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He made the FBI the finest law enforcement agency on the earth, the invincible and incorruptible defender of every American's precious right to be free from fear. Yet America has revered this man, not only as the director of an institution, but as an institution in his own right. For nearly half a century, nearly one-fourth of the whole history of this republic, J. Edgar Hoover has exerted a great influence for good in our national life. While eight presidents came and went, while other leaders of morals and manners and opinion rose and fell, the director stayed at his post. I recall that President Eisenhower, a Republican, and President Johnson, a Democrat, both strongly recommended after my election that I keep him as director of the FBI. He was one of those unique individuals who by all odds was the best man for a vitally important job. His powerful leadership by example helped to keep steel in America's backbone and the flame of freedom 
and America's soul. He personified integrity. He personified honor. He personified principle. He personified courage. He personified discipline. He personified dedication. He personified loyalty. He personified patriotism. These are his legacy to the bureau he built and the nation he served. We can pay him no higher tribute than to live these virtues ourselves as he lived them all of his years, to love the law as he loved it, and to give fullest respect, support, and cooperation to the law enforcement profession, which he did so much to advance. When such a towering figure, a man who has dominated his field so completely for so many years, finally passes from the scene, there is sometimes a tendency to say, well, this is an end of an era. There is a belief that a changing of the guard will also mean a changing of the rules. With J. Edgar Hoover, this will not happen. The FBI will carry on in the future, true to its finest traditions in the past, because regardless of what the snipers and detractors would have us believe, the fact is that Director Hoover built the Bureau totally on principle, not on personality. He built well. He built to last. For that reason, the FBI will remain as a memorial to him, a living memorial continuing to create a climate of protection, security, and impartial justice that benefits every American. The good J. Edgar Hoover has done will not die. The profound principles associated with his name will not fade away. Rather, I would predict that in the time ahead, those principles of respect for law, order, and justice will come to govern our national life more completely than ever before, because the trend of permissiveness in this country, a trend which Edgar Hoover fought against all his life, a trend which was dangerously eroding our national heritage as a law-abiding people, is now being reversed. The American people today are tired of disorder disruption, and disrespect for law. America wants to come back to the law as a way of life. And as we do come back to the law, the memory of this great man, who never left the law as a way of life, will be accorded even more honor than it commands today. In times past, in the days of the American frontier, the brave men who wore the badge 
and enforced the law, were called by a name we do not often hear today. They were called peace officers. Today, though that term is passed out of style, the truth it expressed still endures. All the world yearns for peace, peace among nations, peace within nations. But without peace officers, we can never have peace. Edgar Hoover knew this basic truth. He shaped his life around it. He was a peace officer without peer. The United States is a better country because this good man lived his long life among us these past 77 years. Each of us stands forever in his debt. In the years ahead, let us cherish his memory. Let us be true to his legacy. Let us honor him as he would surely want us to do by honoring all the men and women who carry on in this noble profession of helping to keep the peace in our society. In the Bible, the book which Edgar Hoover called his guide to daily life, we find the words which best pronounce a benediction on his death. They are from the Psalms. Great peace have they which love thy law. Jagger Hoover loved the law of his God. He loved the law of his country. And he richly earned peace through all eternity. Since 1968, some of this violence in politics had stopped. But uh, you know, George Wallace uh, was a person who who knew how to flame, you know, stoke the flames of pa- and passions in the country. He he was a populist that knew how to to really get that stirred up. And it, it was an appeal that was not just a Southern appeal, um, which is a lot of what he gets he gets portrayed as. He was he had a following outside of the South. And it was growing, and he was competitive in Maryland, and he was competitive in Indiana, and he is campaigning in Laurel, Maryland, when uh, an assassin uh, tries to to kill him, and uh, that uh, it does not succeed, and he stays sort of in the race, but uh, he ends up paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life, in in a horrible situation there. And it changes the trajectory of the 1972 Democratic race. And, of course, Georgia McGovern emerges from there. Beaming approval from behind dark glasses, Bremer applauds enthusiastically as Wallace addresses a rally in Silver Spring, Maryland. Then, as the governor of Alabama moves out to press flesh with his followers, a hand pokes a gun through the crowd. (laughs) 
Wallace survives the assassination attempt, but his wounds leave him paralyzed, forcing the end of his active campaign. Clear. This is Irv Chapman, ABC News, Moscow. Mr. Nixon, during his busy day preparing for Moscow, managed to find time to pay a surprise visit to wounded Governor George Wallace at his Maryland hospital. Steve Bell reports. Even members of Governor Wallace's staff were unaware that President Nixon planned to visit Holy Cross Hospital this morning. The president spent nearly 20 minutes with the Alabama governor, talked briefly with Mrs. Wallace, then with newsmen. Uh, he's very alert, and as far as his spirit, uh, it has not been depressed by this a terrible event. Uh, we had a good talk. Naturally, I did not want to impose on him at a time that he was obviously still suffering pain and the rest, but he kept me a little longer than the doctors wanted me to stay. Uh, the, major, the, major, the major subject that we discussed in terms of uh, the future was the trip that I'm taking to Russia. He wished me well, and I told him that when I returned, I would see to it if he uh, wanted to to see that he got a briefing on some of the things that we did discuss in the Soviet Union. I must say that uh, as I looked at him this morning at 9 o'clock, he was very alert. He looked as if he'd had a good night's sleep. Uh, his reaction time was extremely fast. Uh, you, would not, you would think he was just in for a tonsillectomy or something like that, rather than what he's been through. I think the governor is going to come out of this uh, I don't know what the physical damage will be, but the most important thing, nothing's happened to his head, and, and, and nothing has happened to his heart. After the president left, Wallace marked two more recovery firsts, sipping half a bowl of broth and sitting briefly in a hospital chair. Meanwhile, the presidential motorcade had moved on to Walter Reed Hospital and a visit with wounded Secret Service man Nick Zarvis. This time, the president made a promise while accompanied by Bob Taylor, head of the Secret Service White House detail. I told him, and uh, in the presence of Mr. Taylor, that uh, just as soon as he recovered, that he was to get whatever assignment that he wanted, that he and his wife and family should go where they uh, wanted to go. Matter of fact, I just had in mind, you might, uh, Bob, you might send him to keep his skein. Send him to keep his skein. That's a very good assignment for a fellow to recuperate, this fellow. Yes, How about that? Huh? Sir, sounds good to me. He wants to go there, or, to, or, to, or he could go to uh, San Clemente, either place. Okay? That's even better. Yes, sir. Done. Yes, sir. Fine, wherever he wants to go. The president said Agent Zarvis, wounded in the throat, had a 100% chance of regaining his ability to speak. Steve Bell, ABC News, Washington. Two other persons suffered slight wounds in Monday shootings, a Wallace campaign worker and Captain E.C. Dothard of the Alabama State Police, who had been helping to protect Wallace. Today in Montgomery, Alabama, Dothard met with reporters, including ABC's David Snell. Captain Dothard told of heckling and rock-throwing at an earlier Wallace rally last Monday, but said the crowded Laurel had given security forces no cause for concern. We had no heckling to amount to anything. Uh, seemed like all the people there were supporters. Had a little isolated heckling, nothing thrown at all. So when he finished, he wanted to shake hands. Well, he, he asked, uh, he made the statement uh, almost in the form of the question, like he would, I'd like to shake hands. And uh, when nobody said uh, we'd rather not, then he went into the crowd directly. I heard the five shots. I never did see the gun. I never did see the man. What had happened is what we had always been afraid might happen. And uh, 
when you're in a crowd like that, it's hard to have any control over what, what happens. Do you think it's possible to protect a candidate as he campaigns in this way? It's impossible, I think, in a crowd, especially at an outdoor rally where you don't have any way to know what they bring into the area. Captain Dothard feels an end to outdoor rallies and handshaking in mass crowds might help tighten security for presidential candidates. But he said he didn't know what Governor Wallace would think of his suggestions. David Snell, ABC News, Montgomery, Alabama. The accused gunman in the Wallace shooting, Arthur Bremer, apparently has spent some time traveling in the vicinity of more than one of the political candidates. It has now been discovered that Bremer stayed at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York on April 7th and 8th, when Senator Hubert Humphrey was scheduled to be there. For some unknown reason, however, Humphrey changed plans and stayed elsewhere. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.